0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Okay, preaching the word. I have to finish this because I can't leave it underneath here. So, much of contemporary preaching, as Arturo says, and I would think probably is true, is relatively powerless. And his argument is, because the Spirit is not empowering it. So his whole thrust in this book is, how do we have Spirit-empowered preaching? Not just preaching by itself, but with the Spirit-attending The greatest deficiency in contemporary expositional ministry is powerlessness. In other words, preaching that is devoid of the vitality of the Holy Spirit. Because as we've said before, the means of grace are not uh, powerful in and of themselves, There's nothing about a minister that makes them effective in the lives of God's people. It is simply the Holy Spirit who must attend the means of grace and the preaching of His Word, especially to make it effectual, to either convince or convert a sinner. A sinner is dead. You cannot persuade a dead man of anything unless the Spirit gives him life. And to comfort and build up the believer. We're always in need of the Spirit's power. Technique will not solve the problem. But the Spirit's empowerment. This is one of the problems I had with one of the courses I took in seminary. It was on preaching, and it was all about technique. You know, how you do it, what kind of things you use. Always start with a a, a hook, you know, a, a story that will grab them and keep their attention. And there was nothing really about the content of the sermon or the Spirit's power accompanying the preaching. The doctrine of depravity. Teaches us that we are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit if we truly believe that we are totally depraved. Every aspect of our being is tainted by sin, including the mind. We're talking about the noetic effects of sin. It's from the Greek word which means mind, the noetic, mind effects of sin. Your mind is warped. You cannot trust your reason alone, it's the handmaid of faith. We are rational creatures. God speak to, speaks to us through propositions in Scripture, but it's warped. You need the Spirit's illumination to understand the teaching of Scripture. So our doctrine of depravity teaches us that we are dependent upon the Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. No amount of learning, eloquence, skill, or rhetoric can persuade dead men to trust in Christ. That's why we pray for the Spirit's blessing. On Sunday morning. The disciples themselves, eyewitnesses to the person and work of Christ, required the Spirit's power. Now they watched him. They listened to him. They had the finest theological training and ministerial preparation that ever has been received in the history of mankind. Jesus was their mentor. They were Christ's apprentices. They listened to his teaching. As I said, they observed his ministry. They witnessed his godly example, a sinless man. And Jesus knew, and the disciples also realized, that if left to themselves, they would certainly fail. They couldn't convince one person, not one sinner, to embrace Christ. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So don't even begin to attempt this mission, worldwide evangelism, without the Spirit's power. And if the disciples needed the Holy Spirit's power, of course, how much more to people 2,000 years later? We need the Holy Spirit. Now the devil likes to counterfeit. He will always try to counterfeit whatever God does. And so we see a lot of confusion, even in the church today, And I came from the charismatic movement, and there's a lot of weird things going on. And he likes to confuse God's people with that kind of thing. The Spirit uses His Word in converting sinners. You don't have to speak in tongues to be a Christian. That's what I was told. That's what I was taught. There's something wrong with you. You just need to kind of learn and have more faith and so forth. Any questions on what we've covered in the preliminary? Okay. So Jesus promised that his disciples would do greater works than he did. Isn't that a remarkable statement? Jesus, he said, you'll do greater works than me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Now, on the surface of that, that is an astounding statement that you and I, as believers, would somehow do greater works than the Lord Jesus himself. What is he talking about? What are these works that could possibly be any greater than those of Christ? Well, some have said that such works must be various miracles that were performed by the disciples. Of course, in Jesus' name, they went about and did all kinds of miracles that Confirmed the message. Jesus gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, movement to the lame, life to the dead, and he rose from the grave. He rose from the grave. And there is no way that the disciples themselves or anybody after them could possibly exceed the miracles. Nobody rose from the grave by their own power. Okay, they gave sight to the blind, but they did not rise from the grave. The greatest miracle of all time, the resurrection. They may have performed some of them, but not all of them. Others claim that the disciples and the generations after them perform greater works of ministry. These are greater works in ministerial fullness, the breadth and the depth. How many disciples did Jesus have when he left this earth? Well, we're not exactly sure. We know that he had at least 11 disciples who were really committed, but he had far more. 120 of them were gathered on the, night, on the day of Pentecost. So, but you can see, even if he had 300, that's nothing compared to the extent and the breadth and the depth of the conversions that have taken place ever since. Millions. So the ministry of the Spirit transforming us As we go along in our process of sanctification, the evidence, greater works and ministerial evidence, we have the biblical canon that is complete and advantageous. You have the full scope of God's inspired word, which they didn't have when Jesus was on earth. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. So we have ministerial fullness, we have ministerial evidence, we have ministerial efficacy. All nations, people from different languages, So, we have ministerial extent. His was provincial. This is worldwide. He had few disciples. Now there are many disciples. He had the Old Testament. Now we have both testaments. And the whole idea of the ministry of the Spirit... Convicting, converting, comforting, and building up. So in this sense, I think we can answer the question, what are these greater works? Well, it's in the ministry, the works of ministry, that King Jesus, reigning at the Father's right hand, does through his church. Greater works. The greater works are the conversions of people and the advancement of the gospel, So not greater in in, the sense of that somehow we are greater than Christ, but greater in the sense of the breadth and the depth and the extent and the fullness of the ministry that Jesus enables the church to do by His Spirit and Word. That's incredible. Any questions on that? Any comments? Okay. Mary Alice? (laughs) My comment is, Amen. Amen. John? That just that's that's a very different interpretation than I've heard as well. I I'm, I'm not surprised. it I, I just, it, 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 it's, it does also confirm with what actually does happen. You see, actually I think Paul someone from the dead, but the frequency is much greater with Christ. Christ. the apostles, yes, you know, have can heal everything coming, they can heal it. But the focus is on the growth of the church and one of the miracles, clearly. Right. Well, uh, well, While Jesus was on the earth, the focus was a lot, there was a lot of focus on his miracles. Right. And the miracles were extremely important. Um, and of course, yes, the apostles, Paul did raise the dead, but he never raised himself by his own power. He's dead in the grave even now, right? His body has not been raised. So that is the greatest miracle of all time. And that cannot be exceeded. That's the greatest work God's ever done. Redemption in the resurrection of Christ is greater even than the work of creation. As a matter of fact, creation would not have happened if it hadn't been for redemption. The whole purpose of creation is for the redemption of God's people. Anybody else on... Okay. Oh, Great. It seems like like there's a logic from this where it says, because I am going to the Father, that seems to support me. Jesus, one person in human form, one place in time. And so he's got kind of implied, I go to the Father, and the Spirit descends upon many. Very good yeah, point. Of, right? Very good point. That's the I think you raise a good point, Greg. The idea is there would never be a Pentecost without Christ reigning supreme. Right? He had to go to the Father to pour out the Spirit. Very good point. John? Also, That were added to the number. That's right. Was the, was the primary, was the focus. Thousands at one time. You're right. Yeah. And then we see what happened to those people who were added. They had all things in common. There was this unity, this brotherly love that was spreading because the Spirit had poured out the love of God in their hearts. It's an incredible thing. Okay? Modern denials, there are many even in our own day, even in the church, who deny the Spirit's power. They never admit to this. They would never say it if you asked them, but their actions prove the case. Scoffers will come in the last day with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Such churches refuse to rely upon the divinely appointed means of grace. Now, yet they would never say they deny the Spirit's power. If you ask them, just like a, a hypocrite will never admit that he's a hypocrite, you ask him if he's a Christian, yeah, I'm a Christian but his life denies it. He denies the power, right? He claims the name of Christ. So here the church claims the Spirit's power, but denies it because they say, well, preaching's outmoded. It's, it's kind of silly to have a person up there speaking authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ because we're an image-based culture. And we need to reach the youth by images, by video clips, by pictures, whatever the case may be and maybe well-intentioned, I'm not trying to impugn their motives, but I'm saying they're denying walking by faith in what God has appointed. I think God's pretty wise. He could see all of history. He said, this is the means I'm giving you to convince and convert sinners into comfort and build up believers. There are some churches that rely upon secular psychology, Uh, The ministry there is constructed on and driven by psychological concerns so that pastors are viewed as inadequate counselors. You can't just be a pastor. What you need is psychological training, and we have such things as 12-step churches. It's the process that you have to go through to find healing, true shalom. There are other churches that rely upon church growth techniques. You're familiar with these. People are no longer exhorted to pray for conversions and preach the Word with that in view. They're taught to market for growth conversions by methods, techniques. We want to gather the crowds, get them in. And this is what happened largely in the Second Great Awakening. It was really... uh, Results based. We want to get the people in. We want to orchestrate the service, use the music, dim the lights, make it emotionally powerful so that they will be moved to accept Christ rather than preaching the word plain and simple and let the Spirit do His work. You know, we should not confuse physical bodies, numbers with spiritual life, true Christians. There's a church in America that has, I'm told, 30,000 people, and it's held up as the paragon of Christian success. But 30,000 people doesn't equate with true Christian conversions. Now, I'm not saying there are no true Christians there. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying you can't rely upon numbers. It's not about numbers. Again, Jesus had, what, 11, 12 when he died? So... Some rely upon political activism. Time, energy, resources are devoted to political agendas, and members are driven to get involved. We need to bring Christendom to America. We need to extend righteousness in this land, and we're going to do it by our activism. But political activity will never save souls or establish hearts or conform us to Christ or fulfill the Great Commission. That's the danger. So we're not to be involved Christians are to be involved in political activity, don't get me wrong, but the church is not to be about being a bully pulpit for the political party. Any questions on the modern denials, Laura? Just an obvious observation. It's all about us. Yeah. It's, none of those are at all God. Right. And, and what I've learned is that it is an act of faith to just take what God has told us to do, and to be faithful in doing it. Regardless of what the culture is doing or what they say about what we're doing, it's kind of boring. There's not a whole lot of bells and whistles. It's really outmoded. It's old-fashioned. Okay. I'm trying to do it by faith, you know. Anybody else before I move on? Okay. Oh, Jared? Yep. Um, we, uh, we watch movies, good movies, right? Hey, this movie is uploaded, and this one something really like not. I've them. So we make these decisions. You know, we're not, um, you know, we're not, uh, Amish, right? We're, like, we're, we're modern. Kess likes to call us the Amish Church, but I don't think we're Amish. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess everything you're saying is true. Right. Well we meaning back in church, you know, member. Uh why do you draw the line at service or at the door? Or how would you articulate it to you know a you uh, know Doug Wilson type? You know, uh, we're not gonna bring politics from the pulpit, we may have political convictions. You know, again, not like the Amish, we, we don't still participate in politics. Right. And we we address issues if they come up in scripture, right? I think it's this distinction that we made, I don't know, a week or two ago, between the individual Christian and the organizational church. Um, Again, the Christian has great freedom in what he or she can do in service to Christ. In every sphere, in your calling in life, in your family, your neighborhood, you know, my dear friends here went to a bat mitzvah the other day, which I thought was wonderful. They supported one of their soccer friends, and it was a great thing, you know and there were the witness there. But the church shouldn't be about that. The church has a very narrow focus, a niche. Our great commission is to make disciples, baptizing and teaching them. That's it. So it's not just these four walls, but it's what the church does as the church. The elders are not to be taken up with issues of community service or all that kind of stuff. Christians are, not the church. And we have what's called the regulative principle of worship, how that's to be regulated. We have the spirituality of the church, like the church's goals, its tools, its motives are not earthly, worldly, they are spiritual. I can't take, I can't fine you for doing something wrong. I can't, you know, impound your car or give you a ticket or take you to prison. I can suspend you from the supper. And I can excommunicate you, for I, well, the session can, from the membership of the church. That's it. So a very narrow niche with very specific goals, tools, means, reasons why. And I guess that's how I would answer your question. I know there's, it, it can, we'd have to tease out a lot of that, but again, the individual Christian has great freedom. Mark? Yes, yes. How does that relate to the money, our, the, our giving to the church and how the church uses that money? Well, we as Christians give to the church in obedience to Christ and in honor of Christ. It's rendering tribute to him with our substance. We worship in part with our substance. So, as an individual Christian, I give as the church, the session, the governing authorities make a decision on how to use that money, which is primarily to be for gospel ministry. You know, we pay the pastors. We upkeep the building where we have to meet. We give mercy ministry to those in need, these kinds of things. Um, and there may be other causes that we contribute to as the church that we feel is, is good, primarily our missions, you know, there may be a cause here and there that somebody says, I'm not sure it should go there, but it's never like um, secular reasons. We never give it to a political party, for example. That'd be totally wrong in the use of the Lord's money. So what we do is every year we have a budget meeting, and we're trying to be fully transparent. We list it, or Mark gets up there and tells everybody, okay, this is how we're using the money. And we can ask questions, we can talk about it. We're trying to be as transparent as we can to make sure everybody knows this is where the money's going, you know. But ultimately, it's the session who decides where the money's going. If that's yeah. all gospel-oriented. If we didn't pay you to preach, you wouldn't hear the gospel. We would not have the four walls of the building here, but we need to hear the gospel. So I think it's it all goes back to the promotion of the gospel. Yeah, hopefully that's true. Hopefully we're not making mistakes. I mean, obviously we can, but you're right. That's, at least I would say primarily, that's our focus. We want to promote gospel ministry. Okay? So the Holy Spirit is a person. He does possess all the attributes of deity. Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. He is God, eternal, unchangeable, infinite, everlasting. He's God, the Holy Spirit. He is the great communicator of inspired divine truth. Now, this is by common consent. Every person of the Trinity is equal. But they do, by common consent, assign to each other various roles. And the Spirit is the great communicator of truth. I will ask the Father, and He'll give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Now, that of truth refers both to His essence and to His function. It doesn't necessarily apply first and foremost to His essence, but most to His unique action as the communicator. He is the one who communicates, who conveys the truth. He communicates it objectively and externally in the scriptures. He inspired them. This book we have is inspired by the Spirit, God himself. It's God-breathed. As Paul says, It is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, that the man of God can be competent for every good work. Whatever we need to believe and obey, we can find in the scriptures. They are sufficient. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, clearly indicating the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He communicates the truth subjectively and internally by His work of immediate illumination. We need that illumination. You can't understand the Scriptures, and neither can I, without His illumination. I've told the story so often, it's probably, you're probably bored of it, but when I was in college, I said, this is a bestseller, the Bible, I might try to read it. Picked it up, two days later, the most boring book I'd ever picked up. Dull. I put it away. It was worthless to me. When I became a Christian, the illumination, it came alive. I couldn't put it down. I spent all my off hours studying. I said, if I'm going to study, I might as well go to seminary. Perhaps this is a call to ministry, I don't know. We have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. He gives us the Word, and the Spirit helps us to understand. You can have a vast amount of biblical knowledge and yet be severely lacking in spiritual maturity. You have to have the Spirit. He must apply the objective and external scriptures, both subjectively and internally. We need the Holy Spirit. Azariah says, God has given his truth not merely to be amassed, but to be experienced. I'll take a man who might not have half the amount of biblical knowledge as his colleague, and if he's filled with the Spirit and desires to believe and obey that word, I'll take him over the guy who's memorized the whole Bible, who doesn't want to obey the whole thing. <laughs> it's not just the extent of knowledge. It's the experiential aspect that this knowledge is for me. It's to be lived out. It governs me. See, that's the key. I think there's many Christians today, and I'm not questioning their sincerity, they're Christians, but they look at the Bible as simply a self-help book. When I need comfort, I go to the Bible. The Bible is an authority. It's over me. I submit to it. If you come in for marriage counseling... One of the first questions, do you both believe that the Bible is the only authority for belief and practice? Good. We can make some progress. If you don't, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Because this is our standard, you know. if I can't do anything for you. There's nothing I can say to make you live an obedient life. But if God says it, <laughs> okay, here we go. Any questions on the spirit of truth? John? What place, and how, how, they, how might they, if they do have value, how would they interact? They have value. I think it's a good question, John, a really good question. How, how, what value do 12-step programs have? And I think they have value with behavior modification. You're struggling with alcoholism. Okay, it'll help you stop drinking alcohol to excess. Is it going to sanctify you? No. Is it going to change your heart? No. Your sinful desire is no longer going to be for alcohol, but it's going to be for something. You're going to find something to idolize. So I think it can help in behavior modification. But again, let's not confuse 12 steps with the sanctification of the Spirit or salvation by grace alone. That's one of the problems I have with it, because people might think that, well, since I'm in 12 step and I stopped drinking, I'm okay. God's pleased with me. No, that's not true. Reconciliation comes only through Christ. So I wish, if there is a 12-step program, which can be helpful for behavior modification, if there's a 12-step program, let's infuse it with the gospel. Such as uh, Celebrate Recovery? I, I, I have no idea what that is. Yeah. It's, a it's a 12-step program, but I think it's, I, I, I'm also concerned may move towards moralistic therapy deism, where it's doing what you're saying. It's, it's infusing with the gospel with having it. I'm 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 not fully experienced. Right. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not I'm not against behavior modification. We do that with our children, right? We we train them to obey. That's behavior modification. That's all we can do. Perhaps on social learning. We can fill their minds. Social learning. We can train them. We can fill their minds, but the spirit himself has to convert them. So, yeah, Mark. Uh, I think it is a good question. step five. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, but also, since, you know, some of the young men in the church have, have talked to me about their struggle with pornography. that we always deal with the presenting issue first, and then the underlying condition. You know, and I kind of stole that nomenclature from, from a physician, where, you know, the, what's the immediate need to, to stabilize the life and then deal with the underlying issue? And there's one book that we deal... To get off that, but then the heart condition, we have to reorientate from something that has been corrupted to what is holy. Yeah, change the desires. uh, Which, you know what? um, What are we talking about? We're talking about repentance. Right. You know, both turning from and turning toward. Right. You have to do both parts. Right. Because if you just sweep the house, Something else is going to come into that house and it's going to be worse. Right. That's very good point. And I think you raise a very good point the idea of not just turning from, which is the 12 steps, you turn from that, but you're turning to God's mercy in Christ. So that's a very good point. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. We are sinful. That hinders our biblical understanding, and the problem has nothing to do with the scriptures themselves. They're inspired. They're infallible. It has everything to do with our own corruption. We are by nature blind, ignorant, and rebellious. That's who we are by nature. The natural person, and by natural person, Paul's referring to the unconverted sinner. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He won't do it. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So it's not just that he's uh, pushing it away and not wanting it. He can't. There's no ability. And when he says spiritually discerned, that means by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul's use of the word spiritual and spiritually is big S, spirit. It's spiritually, by the Holy Spirit, discerned. So total depravity, then, does not mean that we as human beings are as bad as we could be. You and I could be a lot worse. Sinners could be a lot worse. The world could be a lot worse. But it refers to the fact that every part of our humanity is tainted by sin, as we said, including the mind. Spiritually dead people cannot respond to the revelation given by the Spirit. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You see, the liberals believe that you're okay. A true liberal will say, Well, all you need is more education. Just, you're justified by works, essentially, is the true liberal position. They don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, and so forth. The Arminian believes that you're you're not okay, but you're sick, you're weak. You can reach out to that you know, life preserver that they throw overboard and you're kind of floating in the ocean and you can reach out and grab it and you're saved. The Reformed understanding, or I believe the biblical understanding, is you're dead. You're at the bottom of the ocean. You have to be raised up by the Spirit of Christ. You can do nothing. You can go down to the morgue and pinch, poke, prod a dead person and you'll get no response. And that's the same thing with spiritually dead people. Alex? Alex? What would you say to the Arminian or provisionist who would say that dead in this context is more like the prodigal son when he comes back and the father says, my son was dead, even though he wasn't actually dead, but now he's alive? Yeah, I think that's a good question. What do we say about the prodigal father saying that he's dead? He's dead to him. He's dead to the Father. As far as he, he can't see him, he can't communicate to him, he's out of sight. There's nothing he can do to communicate with his son. He's dead to him, is what the Father means. He knew he was still alive. But I think when Paul's using the word dead here, he, is, he means literally, spiritually, dead. And, and I agree. Yeah, I about it, right. Yeah, I think dead to him is what we have to understand the Father meaning there. It's a good question, though, because we hear it all the time. You're right. And we're, you know, John Gersner talks about the theology of the first glance. It's never right. It's always the theology of the second glance, the theology that's thoughtful, the theology that's looked at it and worked with it and studied it, that really understands the truth that's being conveyed. So there's some texts in Scripture which you read in the first glance. It's like, oh, yeah, I can see that. He's right. But again, if you compare Scripture with Scripture and study it a little more, the second glance tells us that he's not talking about dead to him. We're not dead to Paul. We're spiritually dead. Don? Yeah, I'm going back a little bit. But, um, where do you stand? In, uh, I remember prior to the 2020 election, David Jeremiah came and spoke about the Christian stance on moral issues. Regarding the election, where do you stand on something? Yeah, the question—the <clears throat> question is, where does where do Christians stand on moral issues regarding the election? Is that? Well, uh, having somebody like David Jeremiah come and—I mean, he's, he's a preacher coming speaks out, about moral issues. Yeah, yeah, I think that's important. I mean, we're given the Ten Commandments. And we should preach the Ten Commandments, we should recite the Ten Commandments, talk about the Ten Commandments, and every one of them covers all moral ethics. So whether it's, you know, just war, abortion, drugs, LGBTQ, it's wrong, and we have those Ten Commandments. The exposition of those commandments is in our standards, and that's a witness to the world. Yeah, Jim? Right. Understand liberals have their great voice. Right. And with all these others. The Old Testament, God sent to Israel all these prophets to tell them, you're screwing up. Right. Where, where is that voice now to say, not just to, you know, like it's nice to hear it here. Right. You can say individuals can spread it. But we're a small part, and the country's gone the American Indian basket. Right. And where does where the church speak out on a bigger plane to the fact that we're supposedly a Christian nation? We're not a Christian nation. Oh, I understand that. I would say supposedly we were founded as a Christian nation, but there's nobody out there telling us of this society God's work. Well, first of all, and I, I appreciate your concern, I think it's a valid concern. <clears throat> what is a church going to do about the, the country going down the tubes? First of all, the prophets sent to the Old Testament, theocracy was a unique situation where God's covenant people had broken the covenant. So the prophets were covenant enforcement mediators. You broke the covenant, and these are the things that God told you would happen. Exile, right? Well, we're not in covenant with God as a nation, so that's different, totally different. But there is a prophetic voice that Christ, as the prophet, speaks through his ministers and the church, from the pulpit. It's a public pulpit. It's an open sanctuary. Anybody can come. Right now we're on YouTube or whatever it is that we use for our live stream, right? So this word is out there. It's available as the church For anybody to hear. And we don't shy away from moral issues. We preach those Ten Commandments, right? When it comes to getting in the political sphere, the platforms to talk about policy and those kind of things, we as Christians need to be involved. So if I'm doing my job to preach to God's people and inform them, then God's people spread out and they do the job of being light and salt in a world that's going down the tubes, Right? And I, I know the frustration. You want a bully pulpit, and I get it. I get it. I'm not, you want that loud preaching, and, you know. This is how God told us to do it. Again, getting back to the spirituality of the church, right? Jared? Yes. Would you be comfortable with you? Right. In, this context, Sunday school school. in Sunday school versus In Sunday school. Saying, In Sunday school, of course, if we go to the Eighth Commandment, man stealing is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. So, it's, it's ex- explicitly a moral statement that has implicit consequences. Yeah, I am not qualified to critique public policy. I, I don't have the qualifications for that. These statesmen, like them or hate them, I mean, they've been doing this. They know all the ins and outs. They know all the issues. I'm not qualified. But I can talk about moral issues. So, of course. And even in the pulpit, if it comes up, I, I will address it. You know, if, But I'm going through my belief is expositional preaching. We're going through a book. That means I can't avoid the hard texts. i got to preach them, right? And if it comes up, we'll address it. But again, I'm not going to be governed by the political machinations or the circumstances of our culture. So you kind of draw the line at going from here's a moral declaration to then a prescriptive policy. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully God's people who are involved in that, they're informed morally, and they, with the expertise, can develop policy. Yeah, Jonathan? That's in extraordinary right. The speak. So yeah. Yeah. Very good. Our denomination, we're allowed to speak to the civil magistrate with advice in extraordinary matters, and our denomination considered the uh, the uh, well the transgender issue and sex change of our children. This this is just extraordinary. Allowing children at five years old who have no idea about gender issues or to say, oh, I, I'm a different, I want to be a different gender, beginning the process of changing, you know, genders. We think that's extraordinary. So as a denomination, we sent letters to the governing officials. But that doesn't happen very often, very rarely. But again, that's an extraordinary issue. Our children are in danger. This implies that the Spirit's illumination is necessary, of course. It's illustrated by the Jewish leaders who knew the Scripture but rejected Christ. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, you Biblicist. And it is they that that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You need the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees memorized some of them, I'm told, the whole Old Testament. I don't know how they did that, but they did. And it didn't do them any good. As a matter of fact, it only aggravated their guilt. They needed the Holy Spirit. Azurtius says, for the truth to be known, the Spirit of God must draw his sword. I'm going to have to stop there. we got more stuff, but maybe we'll get that up next time. Any final comments or questions? Great discussion. This is very important, I think. And all these questions are good. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you that he's promised to use the word to teach and to train and to build up, to convert and to comfort. We confess our need for him and pray that he'll be with us now as we prepare for worship. May what we do in glorifying the name of Jesus Christ serve for your glory and our good. We ask it in Jesus' name.